Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is Proverbs 27, verse 17. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Ask any butcher, chef, or surgeon, and they can tell you the importance of a sharp knife. The sharper the blade, the more efficient and precise their work will be. A dull blade is useless. In the operating room, when the slightest bit of dullness is detected in the scalpel, it is set aside and a new, fresh blade is provided. Without it, the procedure can't be done well. This morning's proverb is about the sharpening of people, specifically their character, who they are. Character is what the word countenance is referring to. Iron can sharpen iron, and a man can sharpen or make better the character of his friend. Like the verse in 1 Corinthians, evil company corrupts good habits, this proverb is commonly quoted when discussing the topic of friendship or as a warning about who we spend time with. But Proverbs 27.17 speaks to more than just having good friends or being a good friend. At the heart of this proverb is the Christian life, the life of the church. We all, you and I, need to be sharpened. And we are to be committed to the work of sharpening one another. The Great Commission compels us to, and we see such sharpening effort commanded throughout the epistles to the church. For example, Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Therefore comfort each other and edify one another. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. The Christian life is not a solitary life. We cannot go it alone. To be a loner is to become like a rusty, dull knife, useless. Jesus Christ has redeemed us and given us new life. The purpose of this new life is to glorify him by growing more and more into Christ's likeness and to see to it that others in our lives are becoming like him as well. But fulfilling this purpose requires that we actually be in each other's lives and that we be like iron with one another, not soft and fluffy. Superficial conversation and surface knowledge of each other will never sharpen. Being like iron means daily pursuing Christ in order to be able to sharpen others. It also requires that we really know each other, that we have deep conversations, ask the hard and sometimes awkward questions, and be honest, humble, and open with each other. Brothers and sisters of Christ Church, we have fallen short in this. Yes, we are hindered by space and time, We live far from one another and we have busy lives. There's also our building issue. We don't have a place of our own to regularly meet and do church life. But this is no excuse. 
We must be pursuing one another as we pursue Christ. If we are not seeking to know and to love and to sharpen each other, then why do we meet? Why do we call ourselves a church? Sure, we meet on Sundays to worship God corporately. Yes, we have a high liturgy, a covenant renewal service, regular observance of the Lord's Supper. But is this all that should define us? Is it enough? I say certainly not. These things are important and good, but our Sunday worship service should be merely the pinnacle of a vibrant church life. It should be the culmination of our daily pursuit of Christ in each other's lives and a means by which we are mutually spurred on to continue to grow in Christ's likeness. So let us then pursue each other and let us work together to be, as the Apostle Paul said, rooted and built up in Christ and established in the faith, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Proverbs 27:17 has reminded us of our sin and our need for confession. Please kneel with me as we confess our sins to God. before you this day and we we thank you that you have revealed your salvation to us in your word we thank you that you have set our Lord at your right hand and given him all authority and power and you've made him the judge of the living and the dead and we look forward to his return one day In the meantime, we look forward to his ministry and work in our hearts and lives as he rules at your right hand. Father, we ask that you'll grant us wisdom as we explore what it means that Jesus is the judge. What that means to us and what that means for us. Father, we pray that your spirit would illuminate the the texts of scripture. You would illuminate the paths that you would have us travel down. That you would be our shepherd and lead us and guide us. Father, we ask now that you will bless us as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're um, wrapping up the second major section of the Apostles' Creed that we've been preaching through the Creed. And it's divided into three broad sections, the Father, the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. The second section has been describing our Lord, Jesus Christ, and his work of redemption. And we come once again to his office as judge. And this is a key aspect of our faith. Jesus is the Lord And the judge of the living and the dead. There's no other name under heaven that men ultimately answer to. Because Jesus is the judge. The gospel has both urgency and authority. Because Jesus is judge, the gospel has both urgency and authority. It's urgent because 
life is short and very uncertain. If there is a judgment coming, and all men must answer to Jesus, as we profess, then it is crucial that we first get right ourselves with him. If, he's going, if we're going to be judged, we must get right with him. We get right with God. And second, out of compassion for our neighbors, it is urgent that we share the gospel so that others can get right with God. Now, a quick side note. Don't be intimidated by this. When we describe Jesus as judge and Lord who will judge us, we can see him as this menacing figure in the future. Don't be intimidated by Jesus. He comes down to us and he tells us, fear not. As he revealed himself and who he was and his power to his disciples, they were bewildered. And he tells them, fear not. Just like we covered in Deo Gloria this week with the kids. When Jesus was walking on the water, they thought he was a ghost. He tells them, fear not. He calms the storm and they say, who is this that even the wind and the storm obey him? The waves. Fear not. The gospel that we share is by definition good news. That's what gospel means. Good news that Jesus has accomplished our redemption for us. Getting right with him because he is the judge is not our work. It doesn't rely on us. Praise be to God because that would be a crushing weight for us to bear. We cannot bear it. It is his work. We rest in Him by answering His call in the Gospel. And even our answering happens by His free gift of faith. Nevertheless, because He is judge, the Gospel has urgency. And because of this urgency, as Christians, as witnesses, as ambassadors for Jesus Christ, we should not dawdle. We should not waste the time that we have. Because he has sent us out on a mission to go and to do. We have marching orders. So the gospel has urgency. It also has authority. Jesus' judgeship gives the gospel authority. And this authority means peace and patience for us. Because Jesus is the ultimate judge, we can trust him. Because we are not. We don't have to spin our wheels trying to make everything right. Because Jesus will. We don't need to be judgmental or harsh with one another. No, we're called to be a people of peace and wisdom. We wait on Jesus to do his work in his time. We're called to trust Him, 
to establish justice and righteousness in the world, which He tells us He will do. And we also trust Him to protect us and to vindicate us, to lead us beside still waters and lead us to green pastures. Therefore, we can serve Him without fear, knowing that He sees perfectly. He sees every good work. And He rewards His people. He judges perfectly. No good thing will be lost. And no evil thing will go unpunished. Because that is the kind of God that we serve. So we turn back to the urgency of the gospel now. The first thing we learn about the urgency of the gospel is that Jesus sends us on a mission in the Great Commission. He tells us, God's given me all authority in heaven and earth. I've been raised from the dead. You've seen me. And as he's on his way to go to God's right hand, he tells us, this is what you are to do. Go into all the world preaching the gospel and teaching the nations to do everything that Jesus commanded you to do. Now Paul builds on this. He urges us to enter into this mission. And he tells us to do this wholeheartedly. He says in Colossians 3 verse 23, Whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. One of his favorite pictures for this is the race, the contest. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Also in Hebrews 12. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We are in a marathon. And we are commanded, we are called to run this marathon in such a way that we will win it. Endure, strive, yearn, don't look back, don't turn aside, don't get distracted. It's urgent that you stay focused. And there's a reward at the end for those who persevere. And the reward is definitely worth it. And Paul gives himself as the example for this. At the end of his life, he's writing his last epistle to 2 Timothy. And he says this, The time of my departure is at hand. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul believes the gospel, and he loves the Lord. Because he loves the Lord, he holds dearly to the judgeship of Jesus. It's a... It's a comforting thing to know that Jesus will reward his hard labor and long life of hard work. 
But all along, that judgeship has been the motivation for his single-minded purpose. He always looked to Jesus. And Jesus was always there, shepherding him, guiding him, leading him. By his spirit, by his word. Carrying him faithfully. Another of Paul's favorite pictures for the Christian life, of the gospel lived out, is the picture of the building or the temple of God, which temple you are. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 9, you are God's building. Verse 16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? He uses the same metaphor again in 1 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians 2 and in 2 Corinthians 6. It's a consistent metaphor. The point of this is that we need, or the gospel requires, more than just heart and speed in the Christian life. That's the urgency. Putting your heart into it. Running this race. But the gospel requires more than just heart and speed. Buildings don't move. Buildings don't move, but they do, or they can, last. There's a permanence about buildings, especially this building, the temple of God. So we're called to discern wisdom and practice holiness. We're called to build well. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 15. Now if anyone builds on this foundation which is Jesus Christ, which Paul had laid, and he's speaking to the Corinthians. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, if it lasts... He will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So it's the judgment then that determines what it was that we were building with. You pass through the test, the judgment, the fire. And a reward is given to those who build with precious materials. Now, of course, this metaphor, this picture, this word picture, it begs the question, what's gold, what's silver? You know, it's a, it's, he's talking about us being the temple. How do we build with gold and silver? What's wood? What's hay? What's straw? What's going to burn? We'll come back to this in a little while. For now, we see that God's judgment or his reward is what drives our behavior. He's driving us to holiness. Verse 17, If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Holiness is what he's, he's aiming for. So as God's temple... As God's holy people set apart and consecrated for his service. 
We are different. That's what holiness is. We've been set apart. We're, we're, we're taken out of the world. We're made holy. We're different. Jesus told us that we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. In the Sermon on the Mount. We're different because in Jesus we know salvation. We know that Jesus is our hope. That he suffered and died for us. And he purchased us for his service. We don't belong to ourselves. That makes us different. We belong to him. That makes us salt. We need to live differently than the world. And this difference will bring struggle. Go out and be different. And see if you don't have conflict. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 4. We've spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, listen to what, listen, listen to what he says. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. You're different. They think you're weird. You're not doing what everybody else is doing. Why? Because you belong to Jesus. They think it's strange. Speaking evil of you. And then he says, don't worry about it. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Be different. He says, it's okay to be different. You are different for a reason. Embrace that. You should be different. This is what makes our salt salty. It makes our light bright. We've turned away from the lusts of the flesh because we will give account to this in the same way that the world will give an account. We'll all stand before the judge. The difference is that we are sheep and they are goats. What a glorious thing to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Isn't that what we all yearn for? What more could you ask for in this life but to be approved of by our Lord? To, be, to enter into his glorious reward of eternal life. It's the difference between eternal life and eternal damnation. We shine our light. We are different. We are salty because Jesus will judge. And we desire that the nations come over into the light. Come on in. The water's fine. Right? It's, it's, this is a blessed place to be. Embrace Jesus. It's safe. It's healthy. It's utterly different. Than everything you know outside of him. In the gospel we have peace and hope. But outside of the gospel there is nothing but ultimately despair and loss and death. So don't be afraid to be different. It's your hope. It's the hope of the world. But it's also hard. It means fighting our own 
hearts. Fighting the fears that arise in the back of our minds. It means fighting peer pressure. It means speaking truth which can really hurt, which can really sting. Right? The light burns, the salt stings. Who wants to be the one to get up and make everybody else feel bad by doing what they know they should have done and turning off that movie? Turning off that song? Who wants to call out their friend for having a potty mouth or cursing? I'm looking at my catechism students. We talked about the third commandment this week. Don't take God's name in vain. Who wants to confront their brother with an offense? Nobody likes it because it's uncomfortable. It hurts. It's risky. But this difference is speaking the truth. We're called to do it in love, and it's hard. It's hard for us to navigate what that looks like or how that works. But on the other side of faithful obedience to Jesus' call in this, there is light, there is peace, there is life. We belong to Jesus. We are His man. We are His woman. We are His child. He is the great physician, and He knows that sometimes you have to cut deep and remove the tumor. He knows that sometimes you have to wound in order to heal. Take out the obstruction. And he also knows that if you don't, it's going to fester and destroy life and peace. And we are called to enter into this struggle. Because we are His hands. We are His feet. We are His people. So He calls us to enter into His hard things. That's what it means when He says, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Embrace the fact that you are bearing witness of Him. You're speaking His truth. Also embrace your calling. Paul gives a charge to Timothy in, first, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's, it's the text surrounding what I already read. But um, Listen to Paul's charge to Timothy at the end of his life. He charges Timothy this way. He says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. And he goes on to say that Timothy shouldn't just preach it and teach it, but he should also live it. Verse 5. Be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Paul's using the fact that Jesus is judged. That he will one day judge. As a driving force behind this exhortation. It's the power behind what he's telling Timothy to do. And this isn't very different from what we said before about winning the race, right? Put your heart into it. Do it, do it with, with gusto. But 
the point that I want to communicate to you in this is that of calling. Timothy was a pastor and an evangelist. That was his calling. We're not all pastors and evangelists. We don't all preach. But we are all called to God's service in various ways. We're all involved in small m ministry. As ambassadors for Jesus, we must not be fearful or timid in fulfilling our calling. That's doing what he's calling us to do and and how we're convicted that he wants us to do it to the best of our ability. That's true for all of us. And And the impetus behind Paul's exhortation remains the same and valid for us. Because we'll answer to our judge and king... He's going to call us to account for what we did with the talents that he gave to us. Right? And so, as we go out, we're to to do what it is that we know he wants us to do to the best of our ability. So whether we're husbands, or wives, or children, or employers, or employees, pastors, elders, deacons, whatever it is, whatever role we carry, we bear these roles as Jesus' people. In them we represent Him, and and as such we do well to submit ourselves to His Word and to its various commands in regard to our many different callings. Incidentally, this text comes right after he tells us that the Word of God, the Scripture, is inspired and it, it has everything necessary for us, for the man of God to become perfect. And the Word of God speaks to us no matter what our calling is. It has teaching for you as a mother, as a wife, as a sister, as a father, as a pastor, as a child. Follow Him. Obey His Word. And now we're going to turn back to the authority of the Gospel. Which bestows upon us peace and patience. Jesus' judgment gives us freedom. Because Jesus is the judge, we are set free. The first thing we see there is judge not, right? Judge not. If Jesus is judge, we're commanded to judge not. Now there are three classic passages on this in the New Testament. The first is from Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The problem here is arrogance. Because he goes right on to speak about the plank in our own eye. Right? Why aren't we to judge? Well, because we're not being humble. If we're being judgmental that way. The second passage is James chapter 4. Verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? So I don't know if you remember when we worked through this in the book of James. But when God writes the law on our hearts, and when we judge our brother... We're judging the law that Jesus wrote on their heart. 
This is not acceptable because Jesus is the one who gets to judge our hearts. We are not allowed to do that. You're taking Jesus' job when you judge your brother. That's arrogance, again. Don't speak evil of one another. The last classic passage on this is Romans 14, where Paul talks about the squabbles that have been going on in the church over eating or not eating meat, or observing or not observing holy days. Listen to his reasoning, verse 4. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. He says this virtually the same thing in verses 10 through 13. And again, this, the problem is the same of arrogance. We're taking Jesus' job. He will judge. We don't need to. In fact, we are not allowed to. We don't need to judge others because we can leave our differences in Jesus' hands. Theological differences. Cultural differences, political differences, religious differences. When it comes to issues that we disagree with our brethren on, we look to Jesus. We're called to trust in Him and to wait on Him to expose and exercise His will. Now, wisdom, these are wisdom issues. We're talking, the things that we're talking about are, are wisdom issues. It's not black and white like the Ten Commandments. Well, like most of the Ten Commandments. Some of those are even trying to, you can't see people's heart. Thou shalt not covet. But it's not like murdering someone or stealing something. There the Bible's black and white and clear. We are called to be different, to speak out against that, to identify that. But life is full of things where we have differences of opinion that are wisdom issues. And wisdom issues require an amazing amount of freedom in Christ. Paul listed two in Romans 14, and they even have present-day counterparts. People take different stances on how we should eat, or how we should worship. Right? Whether or not to observe the church calendar, whether we should sing from a hymnal or a band or use a projector. When it comes to something that we have wisdom on, say we know the Bible, we love the Bible, God's given us wisdom and maturity, and we're convicted that we're right on an issue. And we desire to bring someone along, to lead them into maturity. We must do so without critical or judgmental attitudes. Rather, we're supposed to have compassion on them. Jesus came down to our level. He was perfect and holy. And he came down and spoke to us where we could hear and understand him. How much more should we stoop to help those who we are called to help? I mean, we're sinners too. We're forgiven sinners, but we're sinners too. We're still sinners. Now we have freedom to do as we are led by Jesus. But the point in this is that we do what we do for Jesus. In submission to Him. 
He is the one with the authority to judge, and we are not. And Jesus is perfect and righteous, and he deciphers truly. He sees through all the appearances. He deciphers the truth of what actually happened. He sees motives. He sees hearts. And therefore he can distinguish and judge between outward appearances and inward motives. And this is where we come back to our building materials. What are we building with? Gold? Wood? Hay? Stubble? God has given us many clear instructions in Scripture. Things that we might call big E's on the eye chart. Something that's just obvious on the surface at the top. One of the most basic elements of the gospel is that humility lifts us up. God has more pleasure in a humble, fledgling Christian who is all messed up in his theology and all messed up in his practice and has all kinds of baggage and even gross misunderstandings of the Bible. God has more pleasure in that and in him than in a man who's hardened by pride whose life looks like a paragon of virtue who everybody admires and looks up to. We're better off in a church that has the love of Christ, even if the theology is a little off and the music grates against our soul and the believers there think wacky things about the end times and they have messy lives. We're better off there than in a church where the theology and the preaching are perfect and everybody toes the line and looks good, but the love of Christ is departed. This is like a proverb. Again, wisdom issues, right? This is like a proverb. Because these aren't our only two options. It's not either a messy church with love or a good-looking church with no love. But the proverb illustrates the point of which is more important. The love is more important. The gospel is more important. That's what gold is. That's what silver is. That's what precious stones is. It's loving people. Loving people. The building is the people. What's wood? What's hay? What's straw? What's straw? It's all the other stuff that gets in the way. That knocks people down. It's taking up valuable space. In that building. If we let it. But the people are what matter. And loving them is what matters. And that only comes by loving Jesus. In the grand scheme of things, we are all desperate people. Desperate sinners. Crying out. Crying out for redemption. And by God's grace, being sanctified day by day. 
We're clinging to Jesus. He's our only hope. And this we say. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. You're our only hope. Judge us, please. Vindicate us. Deliver us. Redeem us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. Lord, you have truly shown us how good you are. You give us hope in Jesus. You entered into our messiness. You entered into relationship with us. Bore our sins. And now you reign in heaven and you teach us how to enter into each other's lives with compassion, with grace, with hope. Father, we pray that you would build us up into being your temple, being your people. Make us holy. It's your work, Lord. We depend on you. Grant to us the humility that lifts us up. Grant to us the faith that strengthens and encourages us. Grant to us the wisdom to rest and trust in you and to wait on you for your deliverance. For your gospel to be manifested in our world. Father, give us courage to do and to go as you called us to do. Lord, we now Welcome to our Lord's table. Jesus reminds you here to trust his good news. Trust that he is calling you into his fold. He has loved you, purchased you, and redeemed you. You are his, and he has given you his spirit as a guarantee. But he also gives you this food and this wine as a gracious reminder of his gospel and love. We will all stand before him face to face one day. And he will wipe away all our tears. And right every wrong. If it were not for his grace, we should be in terror of him. But he has given us his grace. Which it, and he has purchased us from the clutches of Satan. And death and the condemnation of the law. In the light of the salvation he has afforded us, we sing, we laugh, and we rejoice. We embrace the forgiveness that he has apportioned to us. So take, eat, remember, and rejoice at his appearing. This meal is for Christians, those who are baptized and called by Jesus' name. We are his body, the church. Partaking is a confession of our guilt as well as of our faith in Jesus. We have no hope except in the sovereign mercy of God and in the grace of Jesus Christ. Christ's body, broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, 
please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.